in the holy temple of the founding fathers of streetwear and sneaker culture, A-Life has an entire shrine dedicated to them. If you told anyone with a business degree that you were starting a company with your delinquent friends in the middle of the worst neighborhood with no business plan and you were just going to sell, I don't know, stuff, they would laugh right in your fucking face. But that's just what Rob 1970 and his boys did back in 1999. Since then, A-Life has grown into a global empire that is not only credited as being the kickoff for the sneaker craze, but a performance home for everyone from the Wu-Tang to Nas to Drake. My name's Eli Morgan Gessner, and I'm the co-founder of Fat Farm, Zoo York, and a whole bunch of other shit. I'm also the style editor here at Uproxx. So I came up with this show as an excuse to sit down with my friends and the defining figures behind today's creative culture. This is The Masters. I'm already too hot. Really? schwitzing in a second. I'm just trying to just chill. Yeah, you're doing a good job of that. You want to do it? <laughs> uh, what's up? My name is Eli Morgan Gessner, and I'm the style editor here at Uproxx. State your name and where you're from. Rob, 1970, New York City. Rob is the, uh, the man behind A-Life, but also we, we went to school together. So I've known you since, like, what, we were, like, late teenagers. Yeah. But I would already, when I was a kid, I was already aware of Rob because he it was a notorious graffiti vandal. Graffiti kind of tied our oh, yeah, for sure. our uh, relationship group of people together. So how'd you get into like art and graffiti? And what came first for you? I mean, this was early on. This was like uh, I guess the beginning of hip hop because I remember all the early hip hop shit, graffiti rock on TV and uh, the old. You know, I lived behind a Crazy Eddie's, which was. Uh, <laughs> a big electronic store in New York. And Crazy Eddie, yes. So really my reference for a lot of this stuff was going to the record department and just scouring through all of the uh, album covers. What was the record cover that Stash did? Hip Hop Greats? Yeah. So and then the Mantronics record cover. Yeah. So a lot of the early hip hop album covers and the, you know, the, the beginning of breakdancing and all the little, you know, and where do you start bombing? It, it started on I mean, I started doing it probably around 86, huh. 87, you know, um, and continued until um, I started my business in 99 when people could find me pretty much. I grew up really with only one um, track mind and it was just bombing. It right. was like, huh. you know, white and black, the real excitement to me and the real, you know, joy that I got out of it was the booming, readable shit that your grandmother would be driving <laughs> down the highway and be able to read what we did. Sure. So how, how did A-Life come about? Let's talk about that. Like, where's the, where's the idea? You, you're, you're writing graffiti, but there's no money in that. So where does this come from? Where do, how do the gears work where you're like, Hey, I could make a, a streetwear brand. Before A-Life, I started, uh, I was working at a magazine, a publication. What was the magazine? It was a trade publication, so the magazine was called Sportswear International. It was what like, are you talking about? There's a huge magazine. In the rag trade, yeah. where we all have ended up, Sportswear International it was the magazine. That was my first job, and that came about because the owner of the magazine grew up in my father's neighborhood, and my father said, uh -huh. Instead of doing carpentry or whatever the hell you're doing, go see my friend, Mike Belomo, a gangster from Throgs Neck, 
that owns like that owned the magazine and he said you know what talk to him and see if you could go do something right. in Manhattan so I got this job and it was basically like you know in the art department you know started as an intern stayed at this this place learned the whole business basically um, that's crazy you kind of unintentionally just got set up for this yeah I have always kind of had a a vision of what I like. It, yeah. So that was really my first lesson of how to take what I do and put it into reality. And so working for this art director, um, we would be doing these things called advertorials. So we would be the ones creating these... Advertorials. These advertorials that would then be given to the art director who would then sell them to these companies but it was all of our work. Right, yeah, yeah. So after a while, we said we need to open up a studio, basically, and, and that's how kind of A-Life was born. None of us had uh, any previous business knowledge, how to start a business. Right. We each chipped in, I want to say $15,000 is what we each, you know, four people put together and right. started. Filled the store with product built a store, rented a store, you know, and it all came out of this small budget. And um, the design studio is what funded A-Life's business for a, a very well, you're still here. significant yeah. time. Yeah. And still to this day is like, you know, it's been built upon, you know, the business of, of art related things. So this is, this is what I'm interested in. So when you first started this, yep. Were you setting out to go make a brand, like a clothing brand, or were you trying to just do a design studio? It was um, really uncharted territory, and it was kind of, everybody had a different kind of focus, but A-Life, when we started, was design studio, which had an art element gallery. It had footwear. It was designated to young men footwear, which was weird. Yeah. And so this, What year would that be? It was 98. Eight that we began thinking about it, 99 we opened. When you first started, did you guys have other clients? Did you do other client work? And it's Mass Appeal was right. one of the first, because um, there was no internet. Right. You know, to the to the degree that we know of it, you know, yeah. there was, but it wasn't. So, so you opened it up in 99. Opened up in 99, and while we were opening the store, Throughout the graffiti community, we put the word out and kind of just had a group meeting of anybody that was in the vicinity. So all the boroughs, like, and it was people from Queens, Brooklyn. It was maybe a group of 50 to 60 people that kind of congregated at A-Life. And it was just to kind of like pick people's brains and not even pick people's brains, but put out that we were going to open up this uh, a work space where people, anybody that had ideas that they wanted to try to put out I have Bring a, it in. I, I make, you know, KR from Queens, right. Crink. Right. I make ink in my bathroom. Let's, you know, what can we do? And, you know, you fast forward now and it's a globally Recognized distributed company. product. Yeah. Dick Blick. Like, it's... Yeah. It's, it's a, huge. It's a brand. Yeah. So this shit started from an idea yeah. that, you know, happened at A-Life. So this was the kind so of shit... So it's sort of like A-Life was like a graffiti... Uh, New York City graffiti culture idea incubator? It was, that's what A-Life was born from, was uh. the art. To me, graffiti is, it's marketing. 
It's advertising. That's all it is. <laughs> you could fucking what you what we did with our names. I do. That is the same mindset that I did a life. That is how I to get up. That's it. A yeah. life was like easy to read letters. The branding was very bold, and it it, it mimicked my. Aesthetic. Graffiti career. So what was like the first run of product that you made? So we opened the store. It, the store had footwear uh, geared to young men because at the time there was nothing really. So you had uh, right out of the box. Yes, we had footwear. footwear. So, and we figured footwear because we didn't want to step on anybody's toes uh. that was in this realm. Nobody was focused on footwear at the time. It was art supplies. You know, it was marsh markers. It was weird products. Weird, Define weird products. Industrial marking supplies, ink, you know, inks. Graffiti uh, stuff. Graffiti stuff mixed with other weird shit. We went to Japan, we bought a bunch of like things that I had never seen. There was a, 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 a piece on a, our wall that consisted of 360 tags right. from all different people. Seen, Fat Joe, Fab Five Freddy, like fucking anybody and everybody that had signed these canvases. So there was an art element. Right. There was a working design studio upstairs. There was product downstairs. It was just, it was a weird. So it's, you kind of just, A-Life is just sort of like a happening. Yeah, it was a, it was, it was a workshop almost. Was, Did you think that this model was sustainable? Are you like, oh, we're going to get rich? No. We that had, wasn't the point. It wasn't. It was, we were just stupid and didn't really know what we were doing, but we did know that we loved what we were doing. Sure. What happened is, you know, more and more people coming and uh, kind of just wanted to experience the shit. And Little by little, the big brands would start coming, Adidas and Nike. And Nike was one of the first um, to come back. And they came back with this shoe, which was the Air Woven. Right. Which, at the time, there was no sneaker craze. Right. At all. This sneaker that they pulled out was technology that they learned from Vietnam, how the Vietnamese people make shoes out of grass huh. and they took this technology and made a sneaker out of it they said okay here guys here's 48 pairs we're going to give you and see what happens there was nothing on the market there was this was like new shit so we took these and right away we gave them to aspo and huh. aspo which was a graffiti writer from philly took all the insoles out and signed each insole. So the first Nike Air Woven sneakers that the people have in America right. are all... Espo. Have all messages within them. Nobody even knows this shit. Uh, and underneath the sole? If you pull the insole out. Underneath? Yeah. There's the Espo tag on and the... message. Do people know about it now? No. So this is it? Yeah. If you have these shoes, if you, you should If you have go. the first Nike Air Wovens, you can... Take the insole out and you will find some shit. You wow, a Powers original. Yeah, Steve Powers. Steve Powers, man. So that's amazing. They would be phenomenally valuable yeah. if that's the case. I mean, you know, it's definitely, they would be valuable just because it was the first run at these things. So this kind of started the whole um, sneaker. How did you get this stuff? Because All I got was stupid skateboard shoes. We became a platform for, you know, launching... Cutting edge, avant-garde test product. Product that was not... That's you know. awesome. So that was the beginning of, you know, 
once we saw the sneaker uh, hoopla begin, we opened up our sneaker store. That was in 2001. Right. So all this was previous to 2001. What's the sneaker store? Let's talk about that. Oh, yeah. So we opened this store, which was really based upon a, a old school, like, um, tailor shop from London, basically. Right. You ah, know? yeah. Um, so all, you know, beautiful woods and, you know, just this weird little uh, experiential thing that you would, you know, come in off the street of Rivington yeah, where like you're near, in... Near slum. You're in the hood, yeah, you yeah. know? But it, it's, it, you know, it was a good mix of exclusives, but, you know, 60% of, 70% of the mix was classic, yeah. classic sneakers. Sure. So that was the beginning of the... Waiting on the line for The shoes. whole fucking sneaker craze. Yeah, yeah. And that was also, was that where you guys had the backyard? Yeah. So tell us about that. So Iraq crew, which was right. a young graffiti crew, which fast forward 20 years later, some of them are the biggest contemporary artists in the world. Yeah, yeah. Dan Colin, you know. Yeah. Ryan McGinley with the photography. Dash Snow passed Rest away, but huge. Yeah. Like, these are huge artists you know, yeah. that had, you know, really, like, teetered the line of fashion and, you know, downtown, reckless, yeah. crazy. Drug usage. That was it. So it was like... Graffiti, an, youthful angst. Yeah. And this was the era that A-Life, you know, and we supported this and we kind of like were a clubhouse for this whole crew. Yeah. crew. And um, 2004, A-Life closes our location because the landlords and, and A-Life was always a big, it was a big venue. It allowed us to do visual arts. Right. We moved our store from this big space to a much smaller location next to the sneaker store. So we lost our ability to do these visual shows, but we gained a backyard, uh -huh. which we then began throwing these sessions, which were music-based events. So our neighbor was ABC No Rio, which I don't know if you have history of ABC No Rio, but ABC No Rio was a squat. So, so, they, the, so the ABC No Rio, Punk shows were in the same spot. They had their their building. Right. We had the building right next door, so we were neighbors. Ah. So we were never punk or none of that. Yeah. Even though that was but some that's of cool. our. But that's cool. That's two New York City legendary situations yeah. happening so side by the, side. So it was always a very you know a lot of noise happening from this right. little you know piece of uh, the block. The actual uh, first performance came about through graffiti writer Crash. Crash is the OG graffiti writer Old from school, New York. Old school, you yeah. know, one of the original you know, pioneers of it. We started talking, I don't know, 2003 or whatever. He had already been in touch with Eric Clapton and doing guitars. Oh, I remember this. So yeah, he was yeah. doing artwork for all these big, you know, people and I guess had uh, formed a good relationship with Clapton and, um, I guess got into music somehow or you know made these relationships yeah. and so when we were talking he was like you know maybe we do something with my friend John Mayer and I was like I had no idea who John Mayer was so John Mayer comes to the studio with uh, Crash and we listen to his music together you know Is this before he's famous? He I Think was, I think it's just because you're not like a, a I, white girl from the Midwest. That's you don't it. Know so who I he wasn't is. up on him, but he was already <laughs> on his way to it. Uh, right. Yeah. And you know, we listened to his music, and we decided to have this event, which was a very um, 
you know, a small event that we invited, I don't know, 50 people, you know, weird people, our audience, some of his audience. And so what we did was another one of our customers was Just Blaze, which was more in tune with our audience. So what we did was we had Just Blaze meet John Mayer at the backyard. Just Blaze came with his equipment. John Mayer came with six guitars. They shook hands. <laughs> And, and they've never met each other before. Never met. They met right there. They talked briefly for five minutes. And then showtime and basically both began to... Jam. Jam. And it was a, you know, turned out to be like a two-hour freestyle jam session. So how did you get involved with the Wu-Tang Clan? I mean, I grew up listening yeah. to hip-hop when I heard Protect Your Neck. I fucking will never forget the first time Me I heard too. it. Yeah, yeah. They were somebody that I, you know, looked up to and always wanted to work with. And little by little, finagling and reaching out to this person and that person finally, you know, ended up in contact with certain members of Wu-Tang yeah. and did a sweatshirt that had the Wu-Tang W in rainbow colors almost, you know, <laughs> red, blue, and it popped off and, you Did know. Did they ever perform at the Rivington uh, Space project? Various members have. Raekwon's been there, Ghostface's been there, yeah. um, you know, just never together. Hmm. So every one of these <laughs> sessions has been recorded and right. that, that was, you know, the thing is, is that... Have you ever put any of this out? Not, not real not the right way that it should be. Well, I mean, that's a whole thing right there. You yeah. guys should do the, you know. Well, there's a lot of... Rivington I, Club the, I sessions. mean, it's the fucking best people, you know. It's basically now, fast forward, it has become really like a venue that almost like when CBGB's, I like to, I like to think of it as a venue where sure. people come to town and they play. Right. You know, whether it's fucking 3-6 Mafia, Cypress Hill... Nas, Drake twice, like fucking, you know. Uh, the first time Drake ever played in the United States yeah, was there. Yeah, so Do you know lot, that? I, I knew it was early on, and I knew, you know, the, the shit that happens back there, because it's such a tiny space, yeah. you're not performing up on a stage, you're in, in you know, you're, you're rubbing yeah. elbows with, a, a, you know. An with, audience. That's it. I remember when I came to New York City, my first performance ever was in the A-Life backyard. It only feels right to come back and do our shit tonight, you know what I'm saying? The performances that happen out of that space are, like, really, like, special and just, like... How many uh, performances do you think you've done out of there? A hundred, probably. Wow. King Cruel. I uh, love King Cruel. Designer, you know, uh, Ghostface, Bad, Bad, Not Good. Bad, uh, Bad, Not Good? We had... Dougie Fresh emceeing. We had Bismarck spinning. That turned into a fucking house party. Bismarck was playing house music. Dougie Fresh was, you know, so usually you go to an event, people are just standing and looking. This was them, you know, this was two old school people that knew how to make the crowd right, yeah. Oh, I know party. about it. Yeah. So it's been, you know, it's been, um, it's become a real uh, thing that just happens, you know. It's kind of like, People come, they get invited. It's really all word of mouth, yeah. small invite lists, and very sporadic because it has, you know, they're not really planned very far in advance. Right. But 
That's magical. Yeah, it's yeah. really like something that is just really to give back. So now at A-Life, you guys also have like a rich history of collabs. Yeah. Everyone from you starting off, I guess maybe even Nike placing products might be considered a collab, but it goes to Wu-Tang Clan. And so talk about that. Like how, how did that ramp up and how did that become part of your, uh, your business? We did three sneakers with Adidas and um, that was the first time that we had a major, you know, company like put our brand on them. Now, did, did, was this at the beginning of the sneaker craze? This was at the beginning. So were people camping out to get these or was it just sort of like... It was really just a new, uh, a new thing. You know, it hadn't even really begun to the extent that it has turned into and it worked well. Fast forward, you know, got into co-branding with really a lot of brands, but really the, the people that we chose to co-brand with were people that we respected their product. Who, who was that? Levi's. Right. Timberland. Um, you know, Nike. You know, Levi's was a huge uh, thing for us. That was the first time in the history of Levi's that they ever put another brand on their product. That was 2004. Wow, really? So Levi's, we did five, 10 pairs of 501s. Right. And so five of them were denim, five of them were colors that we invited, uh, you know, five artists. So we invited, I think, Lenny, you know, Futura did some artwork for it. Uh, it had to be relevant to us. It wasn't, you know, mm. it wasn't so-and-so, you know, oh, we need to put your product, uh, your name on this product. So it was, you know, to the extent that it's so overplayed today, it's like half the shit doesn't make sense. The people are co-branding with people for reasons unknown, you know, it's, it's like, so it's really like um, something that we always kind of credited ourselves was like, it has to make sense and there has to be relevance to the product that we're working with. Right, it's you gotta know? be organic to you and your lifestyle. Yeah. You know, that's, why, that's why you guys did the A-Life Crocs. Well, Crocs, Crocs was a fuck you to all the sneaker companies. Was it? Yeah. Oh, tell me about it. That was basically because this, this whole scene has turned into such a fuck fest right. that we took the one shoe that- Everyone hates. Everybody fucking hates. No cool guy fucking would ever wear. And we said, we're gonna work with them and fucking put out some Crocs. And that was basically, that was the messaging behind that. Good. For all you fucking people that don't know. You know, and all this stuff was kind of before, you know, now it's, they're so oversaturated. These companies have just worked with everybody and their mother and sure. kind of like, you know, it's not as... Yeah, it's not as it's, a cutting edge as it was. Not it's as sort as, of sputtering out. That's like it. So Another collab. That's it. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the co-branded stuff that we have upcoming is, you know, it's more kind of unexpected, like, you know, that, the Crocs uh, example, <laughs> you know, of things that people are you know, afraid to associate themselves with because right. of, you yeah. know. Perceived. Uh, perceived, exactly. The dorkness factor. That's it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So. Uh, well, let me uh, um, ask you, I ask everybody this. Um, give me your feelings on youth culture now. Like, what do you think the teenager who's getting into the scene, what do you think about the world? Like, what, what you think that 
do they care about all this? I think like um, it all stems from, you know, we built our thing stemming from other inspiration. I think the people that are really the pinnacle of today's youth, which is, you know, I'll say Virgil Abloh or, you know, some of these musicians, but, you know, I'll just take Virgil for an example of the premier, you know, sure. youth leader of today. But, you know, Virgil was cognizant of what we were doing. He grew up on what we were doing. Sure. He was one of the, you know, first people to interview us back, back. Oh, in the really? Day. So he's been, you know, he's been in this scene and just kind of a fan um, of a life for a long time a fan of just the whole you know culture and we were we well maybe that's kind of, of what i'm getting at is like when you and i were kids and we would look up to like crash or right, lenny or right. whoever you know writing graffiti or skateboarding there was no future in that that no. wasn't a job no but we were sort of the initiators of like making uh I don't know what you would call it, like a, a, a small marketplace. Yep. You know, limited edition runs and yeah. streetwear brand. Yeah. But, you know, running uh, Louis Vuitton, no. that can't get more mainstream, no. albeit elitist, than that. No. So where, is it, where does it go from there? I mean, what, it, do you think that the, the young kid, the 15-year-old kid who maybe writes graffiti and maybe skateboards a little, they have the opportunity to you know, go be a, a run Louis Vuitton now. It seems yeah. kind of crazy. When we were coming out with product, there was no place to sell it. Yeah. There was no department store buying printed t-shirts. For It was all a distribution model that came about from independent people opening up a store. So it would be somebody in Chicago opening up a store similar to what we were doing. It was right. somebody in Florida. And little by little, this independent retail chain grew, right. and then you started to have a distribution, Yeah. right? Yeah. So I think um, we survived because we've always been good at survival and like yeah. operating on shoestring budgets and right. being nimble and, you know, being able well, to you're fucking... You're a scrappy graffiti writer. That's it. So yeah, you yeah. learn how to fucking make moves that like, you yeah. know, allow you to survive.